So there'd be no distinction between Old Testament prophecy before the giving of the Spirit and New Testament prophecy after the giving of the Spirit, that they would closely align. Um, and what we find, and I think this may be in your, it should be in your notes, uh, the, the, the problem is both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are multiple warnings against false prophecies, right? So uh, numerous texts that, that warn us about false teaching and false prophets who are leading us astray or leading the people astray. And so we're to be on guard for those things. So um, New Testament prophecy, direct revelation from God, New Testament prophecy, when it's predictive, uh, accurately predicts the future. So not not all prophecy is predictive. Now you understand that from the New Test- Old Testament as well, right? So a prophet didn't just predict the future. So there were things in the prophecies that were predictive. I'm just finishing Zechariah. We're going to do a, a flyover overview of Zechariah tomorrow. And there's a lot in Zechariah that's predictive. But there's a lot in Zechariah also that's admonishing, exhortational. And that's prophetic as well. What marks it as prophetic is not that it's predicting the future, but that it comes as direct revelation from God. And in the Old Testament... It comes as direct revelation. In the New Testament, it comes as direct revelation from God. And then the point here is when it's predictive, like it was in those two instances with Agabus, when it's predictive, it's got to be accurate in order for it to fall into the category of true prophecy. And you might be wondering, why is he making such a big deal of that? Hold on to that question. I'll answer that in just a minute. Is that where you were going? Okay, okay. New Testament prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And just, just think about this from a theological standpoint, right? If the Spirit of God has given a gift, and if the Spirit of God is superintending the gift, then the gift is incapable of error. So if He gives a gift and He reveals a prophecy... The prophecy can't be an error. Because it's coming from the mouth of God. God's incapable of lying. That's consistent. Old Testament and New Testament. That's always the way they think about the gift. If it's whatever's being revealed prophetically from the mouth of God, it's true. And by definition, it must be that way because it's coming from God. Along with that, New Testament prophecy is fully authoritative so it 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 it's not just something that's interesting to know but it comes with the authority of God and the expectation that it will be obeyed and followed so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 this is verse 3 one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So there is that exhortational aspect that compels people. So if you receive a prophecy, then it's not a matter of, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. It comes on par with the authority of the Scriptures because it comes from the mouth of God. So it's not a matter of, well, it might be right, it might not be wrong. Uh, it might be right, it might not be right. It, 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 if, it's, if it's genuine biblical prophecy, it is right, it is authoritative, it is compelling, and we must follow it and we must obey it. So then the question is, oh, 
I got way ahead. Uh, the question is, um, is biblical prophecy or any other continuationist gift appropriate for today? Oh, well, no, I didn't. Here's the summary. This is from Blaylock. This is in your notes. It's an article from Themalios. Themalios is a journal that's produced. It's an online-only journal. It's produced by um, the Gospel Coalition. And there's a variety of articles on it. This article is stellar. It's like 40 pages. It is heavily researched, thoroughly biblical, super helpful, uh, and it's free. So you can go to the website there and download it. His summary is this. New Testament prophecy can be defined as, one, a miraculous act of intelligible communication, two, rooted in spontaneous divine revelation, three, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which, four, results in words that can be attributed to any and all members of the Godhead, and which, therefore, five, must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. So those who are advocating for prophecy, it has to fit that standard because that's the biblical standard. And Blaylock especially goes through and and does a a masterful job of um, explaining all that. So the question for us today is, is biblical prophecy a gift for today's church? Here's what Grudem says. So prophecies in the church today should be considered merely human words. That's not the way the Bible thinks about them. Old or New Testament. Not God's words, he says. And not equal to God's words and authority. If someone really does think God is bringing something to mind which should be reported in a congregation, there's nothing wrong with saying, I think the Lord is putting on my mind that. Or it seems to me that the Lord is showing us or some similar expression. Of course, that does not sound as forceful as, thus says the Lord. But if the message is really from God, the Holy Spirit will cause it to speak with great power to the hearts of those who need to hear it. Well, the reason it doesn't sound as forceful as thus says the Lord is because it's not. But if you read the prophets, what's one of the phrases they keep using over and over and over and over and over and over? Thus says the Lord. I didn't count how many times it appears in Zechariah, but it is all over the place. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And and by that, we understand that there has been direct communication between God and the writer and the prophet. And so Grudem is trying to create this category of prophecy that is in some way compelling, but without authority. That is some way revelatory of the nature of God, but could be errant and could not be stated unilaterally that it's always true and always must be followed. But the Bible doesn't have that category in the context of prophecy. So would this be like an open canon? Well, that's where they end up. Now, he would not say it's an open canon. But yes, you've got you've got addition you've got additional revelation that is binding. Yeah, that's problematic. And that's why it's problematic for us as a certifying organization because I don't want anything competing with this book. In fact, I'm, I try and be really clear when I'm counseling, right? I take the text and I open the text. Okay, let's look at Ephesians 5, husband, and let's think about what your role is. Now, your role is to love your husband, or you love your wife. And what, is it, what does that mean as a husband, to love your wife as Christ loves the church? And we talk about the implications of that. How does Christ love the church? And, and 
And then we think in particular ways. Now, this is your wife and her situation, her circumstance. What are some ways that you might apply that? And I try and make really clear, this is what the text says. It's authoritative. And these are some ideas about how to draw out implications, but they are not the same. My ideas are not compelling and they are not authoritative. And he can walk away from them without any problem, but he can't walk away from this. And so we've got to be really clear. And that's where, frankly, that's where pro- the new prophetic movement is muddling that picture. Is it's saying there's this idea of this revelation that we're calling prophecy that has some measure of authority, but it might be errant. <laughs> and when you bring that into the counseling room, that creates a real problem. Um, and that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, is prophecy as a continuing gift taught in Scripture? So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is, this is um, an important verse for understanding what's going on. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll start in verse 19. Uh, the verse I want to look at is verse 20, but it's the middle of a sentence. So let me start in 19. So then he says, you are no longer stra- strangers and aliens. He's talking about the Gentiles who'd come to faith. You're no longer strangers and aliens from God, from the Jewish people who have the covenant of promise, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. How so? Verse 20, having been built, God's household that is, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And in this passage, what the apostle is doing is he is acknowledging that the gift of prophecy and apostleship existed in the early church. And we can affirm that. It's very clear from the biblical text that that is true. In fact, you turn the page to chapter 4 and he mentions it again. It's one of the... One of the gifts or two of the gifts that he mentioned, um, apostleship and prophecy. So we understand that. But the, what's the role of those gifts? According to verse 20, the role of those gifts is to build the foundation of the church. And in fact, he is particularly careful um, to say that the the gifting of those gifts was something that was done in the past with the idea that it's been completed. So there are some verb tenses in the Greek that say that happened, but it has ongoing implications for today. Let me just give you one example because it's it's fresh on my mind. Um, Galatians 3.1 He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? That word crucified has the implication of he was crucified, but it has ongoing implications through today. So Christ's death is not something that's behind us. Christ's death is something that is always with us, right? It always is applicable for us. So his crucifixion had ongoing effect. That's not the tense that he uses here. He uses a tense that indicates it's been completed and it is finished. So we would say that those gifts were foundational in the building of the church. 
um, but they are no longer for today. Schreiner says, these New Testament prophecies aren't merely good advice about whom one should marry or about private matters of one's own individual life. They are playing a foundational role in building the church of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, it's analogous to Matthew 16:18, where Jesus says to Peter on the declaration of who Christ is, you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm gonna, the rock of this statement, I'm going to build my church. That's very much analogous to what's going on here. Um, notice as well that the verb tense here in verse 20 is a passive, which means the apostles and prophets are not doing the building, but that someone else is doing the building through those gifts. And that would be obviously God himself. Um, And again, the tense of the verb is such that the church is no longer building on that foundation. The foundation has been built. So some of you might be aware we're having water problems in the building right now. And part of the water problem is that there is a leak, a water leak underneath the slab. right? Which is not horribly unusual, but it is um, an annoyance and more. How do you find that thing? Well, the problem is the foundation is finished, right? The foundation is completed. We're not working on the foundation anymore, right? So the foundation is poured. It's cured. It's been curing for 25 years. So it's well cured. We're not working on the foundation. That's done. Now, we are building, working on other things up top, right? So we're we're constantly renovating. We just finished a renovation project a few weeks ago, and we've got some other things planned. So there, there are things that we continue to build the superstructure, but the foundation is done. That's what he's pointing to. That the foundation is finished, the, the foundation is completed. So again, Schreiner says this, if prophecy still exists today, it is hard to resist the conclusion that the foundation established by the apostles and prophets hasn't been completed and that the New Testament prophets are still adding to the foundation of apostolic teaching. Then we're faced with a situation where people are still speaking revelatory words today, and in such a scenario, the final and sole authority of the New Testament is threatened. And that's exactly the point you were bringing up a minute ago. So you've just got a problem then. Who's the authority and what's the authority? Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 indicates something similar. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, so direct revelation from God to the fathers in the prophets. So God spoke directly to the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appeared, uh, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. So again, he spoke this way in the past. That was finished. Now he has spoken to us in Christ and his teachings, including the epistles. And now we have what we need. We don't need the foundation of the prophets anymore. What is the relationship? What is the relationship between prophecy and and sufficiency? The problem with continuationism is that it presents a problem of authority. We've already addressed that in part. Hebrews, the text I just read, indicates that biblical prophecy was the Bible. So as people thought about prophecy, they were thinking Scripture. And all the things that we think about, sufficiency of Scripture, authority of Scripture 
inerrancy of Scripture, etc. So, to speak prophecy was to speak authoritatively. If someone has the gift of prophecy, they're not giving suggestions, but they're speaking authoritatively. And just to clarify, we're, we do not believe that anybody speaks with that kind of authority today. Even Grudem would say that nobody speaks with that kind of authority today. And since that is true, uh, and if that is true, if you allow for prophecy, then, then just who becomes the authority in the final word when we're counseling, right? So if we say, yes, prophecy is something that we want to allow for today, but we also have this Bible and they have equal footing, what becomes the authority? Um, the only thing we have is the scriptures. Scripture alone is the authority of God. And I'm just going to run through these. You know that you know these passages. You're well familiar with, with all of these passages. Um, the final one there, Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 22, is the warning not to add anything to Scripture. God has spoken adequately. He doesn't need anything added to it. He has told us what He wants us to know. Um, and He has addressed that well. So we would say... Okay. How do you answer that? Um, so, if God has spoken with authority and He says, don't add to this book by implication, at minimum, He also means you don't need to add anything else either. There's something similar in Deuteronomy. Yeah, I was going to say there's New Testament. Yeah. Uh, are you thinking of 2929 maybe? Um, which should be in my head and at the moment has escaped me. Um, 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, but that we may observe the words of this law. No. 1232. Yeah, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Yeah, and again, you know, the same people who say, well, he's talking about Revelation, they might be saying, well, that's just in reference to the Mosaic Law as well. But I think that the point simply is, if God has wanted us to know, he's told us what we need to know. And we don't need to add to it. Betsy? I'm not remembering I'm not remembering anything from Paul where he says don't add to my letter. Yeah, well when he's when he's authenticating, you know, probably what he's doing is he's used an amanuensis, some a scribe. And he's probably just adding a personal note in his personal script. So they get the letter and say, well, this isn't Paul's handwriting. And he's adding that note at the end to say, yeah, I've had this amanuensis write it, but this really is my letter. It is coming from me. And, it, and because he's an apostle, he can speak with the authority of the apostle. And that's, that's all he's doing. Um, so he's, it, it's kind of an authenticating signature, if you will, um, which would be a little bit different than what you're talking about. Um, In total, you know, we take Second Peter, Second Peter one. 
you know, everything we need for life and godliness we have in the scriptures in Christ. There's nothing additional that's needed. We have the gift that's been given to us. And that's, um, that's simply the point. And add to that, at least there are no more continuationists the way, or there, there are no more prophets at least the way uh, we define and think about prophecy from a biblical standpoint. So MacArthur writes this, the continuationist view actually defaults on the sole sufficiency of Scripture at the most practical levels because it teaches believers to look for additional revelation from God outside of the Bible. As a result, people are conditioned to expect impressions and words from God beyond what is recorded on the pages of Scripture. Let me just pause there. That, that, that is the problem, right? It becomes impressions and thoughts and ideas. But when you look at biblical prophets, it was clear God spoke. There was no equivalence like, well, I think that was. But I mean, I have a lot of thoughts that roll through my head. And some of them come when, you know, I'm not sleeping. Some of them come when I'm wide awake. And, and it's like, well, what do you know? How do you know what's true, etc.? Thus says the Lord. So the prophet spoke and he said, there's no question. This is, this is from the mouth of God. He's revealed it directly to me. And that's not, you know, even Grudem himself has affirmed that. He's looking at impressions and um, ideas, feelings. Um, so MacArthur goes on, by using terms like prophecy, revelation, or a word from the Lord, the continuationist position has real potential to harm people by binding their consciences to an erroneous message or manipulating them to make unwise decisions because they think God is directing them to do so. The continuationist view allows people to say, thus says the Lord, or I have a word from the Lord, and then to give a message which is full of errors and therefore, in fact, is something the Lord did not say. As a result, it allows people to ascribe to the spirit of truth messages that are not true, and that borders on blasphemous presumption and puts its advocates in a spiritually precarious position. Um, So, again, um, Grudem is open that what he is thinking about when he thinks about prophecy is not in alignment with uh, biblical prophecy as we think about. And, and frankly, at that point, he's already given up the farm because he's affirming that what he thinks of as prophecy is not what was going on in the scriptures. Well, at that point, our case is one. It, he, he, he willingly acknowledges what goes on in the scriptures in terms of prophecy isn't happening today. So he is a cessationist. He's just adding a new kind of prophecy that is not in accord with what the scriptures have said prophecy is. So again, just some uh, resources that are helpful. And we've talked about a number of these passages, but resources that are helpful. MacArthur's book, Strange Fire, um, he did an update of Charismatic Chaos a number of years ago. Strange Fire is a little bit newer. Um, Tom Pennington just had one released uh, through, I think, Reformation Heritage. Is that right? I'm sorry? Okay, but I I saw it on, did Reformation not Heritage not publish it? Maybe, okay, maybe they're selling it. Um, anyway, so that was just published, and that was on Tongues, I believe. Is that right? Uh, the whole, uh, was it the whole sign gift? Okay, so it's on cessationism. So you might check that out. Tom Pennington, he's up at Countryside Bible. 
Um, and then Shriner's book, that's a short book. It's an easy read of spiritual gifts, really, really helpful book. And then I cannot commend to you enough that article by Blaylock uh, towards a New Testament definition of prophecy. He does a stellar job of explaining that. Okay, let's talk about general revelation and special revelation. Uh, define general revelation and special revelation. Describe the nature of their authority as well as their relationship to one another. So when we talk about general re- revelation, what are we talking about? General revelation. Um, I have a quotation. I can't remember where it came from and I didn't put it in my notes. Located in history, nature, providence and the conscience General revelation is addressed to man as man and tells of God as creator and moral uh, governor of the universe. The big thing that you must understand about general revelation is, one, it is revelatory in that it tells us something of the nature of God. Two, it is non-salvific. General revelation will not bring a person to salvation in Jesus Christ. And the nature of general revelation is that man has suppressed and rejected God's revelation in favor of their sin and their own desires. And we see that particularly in Romans chapter 1. What has God revealed in general revelation? Uh, Romans 1, he says, verse 20, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So we see God's attributes, God's power, God's nature through creation, through what has been made so that everyone who sees it doesn't have excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor. That word is actually glorify. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So what we find in general revelation is that God has revealed his attributes. Stephen Charnock identified at least 10 attributes of God that are revealed in creation. Uh, the power of God in creating the world out of nothing. The wisdom of God in the order, variety, and beauty of creation. The goodness of God in the provision God makes for his creatures. The immutability of God, for if he were mutable, he would lack the perfection of the sun and the heavenly bodies, wherein no change hath been observed. The eternality of God, for he must exist before what was made in time. The omniscience of God, since as the creator he must necessarily know everything he has made. The sovereignty of God in the obedience of his creatures to pay him in observing their several orders and moving in the spheres in which he set them. The spirituality of God, insofar as God is not visible and the more spiritual any creature in the world is, the more pure it is. The self-sufficiency of God, for he gave all creatures a beginning, and so their being was not necessary, which means God was in no need of them. And finally, the majesty of God seen in the glory of the heavens. Um, I really love my friend Kevin Carson, who said uh, that many times when he's taking his kids to school, you know, he'll pull out to the end of the driveway and he'll just pause and he'll stop the car and say, Kids, do you hear that? 
No, Dad, what? What? Look, the sun. It's declaring the glory of God, right? These beautiful sunrises. And it's God's heavens shouting God's glory. And that's exactly what's going on. Um, not only has God revealed his attributes, he has also revealed, according to this verse, his power. Um, the sense is not so much um, how strong is God when we talk about God's power, but the question is, will God get tired or when will God get tired? And the answer, according to creation, is never. He upholds all the world and all created things without a sense of any kind of weariness. And we, we just don't have any category of that, right? But he just, he just holds it. I love Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, he says, um, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you take care of him? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, you think, what did it take God to throw all the heavens and the vastness of the stars and the universe and everything that we can see? What did that take for him to do that? This. It's like a child playing in a sandbox and making mud pies. And the energy that it takes to do that, that's what it took God to make the vastness of the universe. That's incomprehensible to us. And it's just our way of saying it took nothing. It was nothing that strained him. Um, His divine nature is also revealed. Um, So his deity is revealed. Uh, the fact that he is divinity is revealed in his creation. What makes him God has been revealed. God, therefore, says Charles Hodges, has never left himself without a witness. His existence and attributes have ever been so manifested that his rational creatures are bound to acknowledge and worship him as the true and only God. Um, his creation also reveals his moral truth, and we find that not just in creation, but in one of the gifts of creation, and that is the moral conscience. Uh, We find this in verse 19, same chapter. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the idea is, even though they are not believers, they know the truth and they're just pushing it down. It's kind of like that beach ball in the water, right? They're pushing it down and trying to get it down and trying to uh, submerge it. And and ultimately they can't and they won't be able to. And then he says, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. It's not just that they're looking out there and seeing it. It's internal as well. Inside, they know the nature of God and the character of God. God has revealed it to them and they are trying to um, avoid it and put it away. And we see the same thing in chapter 2, that discussion on the conscience. We talked about that earlier this morning. Um, what is the authority of general revelation? What does a general revelation do to men? What kind of authority does it have over them? It holds them culpable. It makes them guilty. They've had revelation that should have taken them to God. 
so that, Paul says, they are without excuse. Nobody can go to God and say, I didn't know. It was outside of them in creation, and it was inside of them in their conscience. They did know. They just didn't want him. In fact, the rest of chapter 1 is the full manifestation of that, right? They, they know. They profess to be wise. They become fools. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, they will have any kind of idol except the one true God to worship. They will replace him with anything so they don't have to deal with him. And the idea is that it's intentional and volitional. They make the exchange. They go to the store and they say, may I have that idol that I might worship? And they're doing that with intentionality. And then he shows um, verses 24 and following what that produces in their lives. It is enough to hold. They are still culpable. Yeah, that that's part of. I'll say that's part of the mystery. <laughs> but they are culpable enough to know this is this is the nature and the character of God. I should pursue and I should seek and I should desire and I should yearn. There is. Go ahead, Lee. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and they were already born under condemnation. By nature of Adamic sin. That's Ephesians 2. So these are people that are denying general revelation. God in general general revelation. We're not talking about people who go go out and worship their backyard as as if it were a God. Well, that's denying God too. But but even people who... I'm not following your question, I don't think. Yes. Okay. So, but they may not know who that God is or... Sure. Okay, so then... But then the person goes out and says, well, there's a tree. I, I don't know where it came from, but I mean, is there a difference? Like in... Okay, so I will say, in hell, in judgment, one, nobody goes to hell unrighteously. True. Right? So, we're all born in sin... The only thing anyone deserves is hell. From those who deserve hell, God said, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one. And he pulls some out, reveals. But nobody can go to hell, or nobody who is in hell says, it's not fair. I wasn't treated righteously. God is wrong. They're culpable both because of their nature and because of their sin in which they rejected that revelation which they had. It may not have been a full revelation of Christ, but they did have revelation and they rejected it. They rejected what they got. 
they rejected what they had. That makes them culpable. See, if I talk long enough, I'll figure out what to say. (laughs) No, that's helpful. Um, I can't see my watch. Is that 23 or 33? Good, I have seven minutes. And three pages. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Key passages to look at. Um, Psalm 19, um, which is general. Psalm 19 is a great, a great passage because it has both general, general and special revelation. So the first six verses are about God's general revelation and creation. Starting in verse 17, 7 through 14, we have God's special revelation in the scripture. So that's a really helpful passage. Um, and then, uh, we've spent a lot of time on Romans 1 and Romans 2, and those are particular. So, uh, those, um, other passages relate to that. Uh, special revelation. What is special revelation? Special revelation is distinguished from general revelation in that it is soteric. That is, it saves. It, it's part of our soteriology. If you want to know how to get saved, you have to have special revelation. It is the means of salvation. Says one writer, special revelation is addressed to man as a sinner. Its aim is the salvation of the elect by unfolding the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of kinds of special revelation. And you see all of these in scriptures, direct speech, theophanies, visions or dreams, prophecy. And there is a distinction, by the way, between visions and dreams, but the Lord uses both at various times. Prophecy is special revelation. Christ is special revelation. Scripture is special revelation. For our purposes, most of what we're going to be thinking about when we're using the term special revelation is Scripture and or Christ. Um, So that's what we're thinking about in general about special revelation. What is the authority of special revelation? It is specific in its revelation. That is the exact nature of God, His requirements... Um, the explanation of who he is and his provision for salvation are all revealed in the scriptures so that it is specifically authoritative con- to condemn all men for all their sins. And we find that in Romans chapter 3. There's none who's righteous, no, not one, none who's done good, etc., so the scriptures are particularly able, specifically able and authoritative to condemn all sinners. And it is specifically authoritative to redeem men from all sins. So that's, that's the work of special revelation distinct from general revelation. General revelation can say, I know there's a God. I know I'm not God. I know no one I see is God. And I know I've got a problem because I'm not in right relationship with God. But that's as far as it can take you. Special revelation is what's needed to answer our problem of sin. So scripture reveals Christ in saving work. And only in the scriptures can we know Christ. Uh, general revelation is it he- enough to help men to understand the existence of sin. Only special revelation will lead men to comprehend the depth of their sin, the uniqueness of Christ to save them, and to transform them into the likeness of Christ. Um, 
A number of passages I've already alluded to Deuteronomy 29, 29. So there are some secret things that belong to God. We just don't know. We're not privy to that. He's not revealed it. We don't know it. We can't surmise it. But there are things that is revealed and that's ours. And that which has been revealed to us will be ours until eternity. And that's this book. Um, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. 176 verses of what God's Word is and what God's Word does and so very helpful as we think about the authority of God and His Word and then other passages you're familiar with there. Um, The relationship between special revelation and general revelation. Both general and special revelation are revelatory. So they tell us about the nature of God, but there are differences Um, creation will cease to exist in its present form and will be changed while the scriptures endure forever. So general revelation, in a sense, will change, but the scriptures never change. Secondly, creation was cursed in the fall and is in bondage to corruption while scripture is inspired by God and thus always perfect and always holy. So now when we look at creation, we're looking at a different creation that Adam and Eve looked at in Genesis 1-2. Uh, one and two, right? So that was a perfect creation, an unfallen creation. Think about how magnificent that creation was. If you look at our creation and see such immense beauty, what must that have been like before the fall? Uh, general revelation can only provide an awareness of God and sin. It is incapable of redeeming. Only scripture and the person of Christ can save sinners from the wrath of God that they deserve. Um, And then I think I've given you a chart that's from Moody Handbook of Theology uh, demonstrating aspects of general special revelation um, that I think is probably helpful to you. 